Anyone listening to this podcast knows that I've been telling you about The Great Courses Plus for a while now. Many of you have already signed up, getting unlimited access to watch over 7,000 fascinating lectures taught by award-winning professors. But if you haven't signed up for The Great Courses Plus yet, I want you to do it now with a new offer for our podcast listeners. With The Great Courses Plus, you can watch as many different lectures as you want anytime, anywhere. One course I recommend is Analysis and Critique, How to Engage and Write About Anything. Presented by Professor Armstrong, the lectures in this course guide you through the essential skills to become a better writer, showcasing tools to organize your thoughts, make a persuasive argument, and create a distinctive voice. I love The Great Courses Plus and want you to try it too. As one of my podcast listeners, when you sign up, you'll immediately get one month free of unlimited access to all of their lectures. Start your free month today by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brett. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brett. The following program is a podcast1.com production. I'm Brett Easton Ellis, and you're listening to the Brett Easton Ellis Podcast, and I'm here at the Podcast One Studios in Beverly Hills with my guest, the filmmaker Karen Kusama. In an appreciation of the hot young singer, Sky Ferreira, that the LA Weekly posted a week ago, the writer Art Tavana wrote, quote, Sky Ferreira has a name that reads like a turbocharged Italian sports car or the kindred spirit to second-generation Italian-American pop star Madonna, the most ambitious woman to ever wear a pink cone bra. Both Sky and Madonna have similar breasts in both cup size and ability to cause a shitstorm. When Ferreira dropped her debut record, Nighttime My Time, three years ago, the bare-breasted album cover nearly broke the internet. Misogynists claimed it was a desperate attempt to sell records. Feminists saw it as the calculated move of a defiant young woman. A third unnamed group that included me couldn't help but reminisce on the past, on Madonna's defiantly atomic boobs the two knockers that altered the course of human history. In the now infamous photo taken by the Argentinian filmmaker Gaspar Noé, Ferrero looks like a dirtier Madonna, square jaw, strong eyebrows, lulled green eyes, crucifix, bleached blonde hair, translucently pale skin, and killer tits. 
America has already established that Ferrara looks a lot like Madonna, but we almost never have the audacity to admit that her looks offer the most appeal to the American consumer. To pretend looks don't matter in pop music is ridiculous. Looks matter, they always will. Unquote. Uh, Tavana goes on to write how Ferrera has moved past this idea. Quote, she's too nasty to be anyone's schoolgirl fantasy. She looks like an unvarnished Madonna styled by Maripol with a vaguely mystical presence of Nico and the faux punkness of a Sex Pistols groupie. In other words, Sky Ferrera is the most deliberately pimped out example of a modern pop star. She's not a mindless product like Britney or a depressed indie pop singer like Lord, but she's also not bitter or punk like Meredith Graves or a feminist superhero like Grimes. She's the pop star who's so personally cool that her record label capital doesn't need to hire a team to mold her. Unquote. Um, Tavana goes on to praise Ferrara as a fashion icon, an accomplished actress. He talks about how she's hated by the elitist snobs in the indie scene and decried by feminists when she refused to condemn the notorious and accused misogynist photographer-pornographer Terry Richardson and most importantly, that she will never let her past history of sexual abuse define her. Compare Ferrara's 2014 Facebook post about this to the 12-page letter the recent Stanford rape victim penned, and you will see two very different takes by young women who have suffered sexual abuse and who are the same age. Tavana goes on to write about how pop stars profit off their beauty and the sexual allure that attracts fans. And I remember clearly many guys in my high school who were not particularly interested in new wave. But when Blondie came around, they were all drooling over Deborah Harry and they started ignoring the Eagles and Foreigner and became fans. And the same with Patti Smythe and Scandal as well as Susanna Hoffs and the Bangles and on and on. But this looksism goes back to Elvis. And the Beatles with cute mop tops, John and Paul and Ringo and George, sold by their adorableness at first. Throw in Mick Jagger and Jim Morrison and Sting and every single boy band that ever existed, and it's still not the same. Because our gender differences about looking and appropriating is not a narrative about equality and inclusivity. Women get looked at and appropriated a lot more than vice versa, granted. But I think in this era driven by the dreaded idea of inclusivity for everyone, no matter what, beauty seems threatening, a separator, a divider, instead of just a natural thing. The natural thing being people who are admired and desired for their looks, individuals stepping away from the herd and being worshipped for their physical beauty. For many of us, this is a reminder of our own physical inadequacies in the face of what our culture defines as sexy, beautiful, hot, be it straight or gay. And yes, little snowflakes, boys will be boys. To pretend that looks or that hotness, whether you're a guy or a girl, shouldn't make you popular is one of those sad, politically correct stances that make you question the validity, the reality of politically correct thinking and a few journalistic reactions to the L.A. Weekly piece. This ode to Sky Ferreira may not have been that well written, but it is clearly written honestly by, yes, most definitely a man who is, yes, most definitely looking at a woman he desires and writing about that desire. What's wrong with that, even if it overshadows what he thinks about her music? So what if he's honest about objectifying her?
Oh, clearly you didn't think the little snowflake justice warriors everywhere, from the LAist to Flavorwire to Jezebel to Teen Vogue to the Vulture, were going to let this innocuous piece go unnoticed without having a hissy fit. Oh, yes, most deliciously. The little snowflakes got so pissed off and were just so unbelievably offended by this piece that they had to denounce it. Oh, little snowflakes, when did you all become grandmothers and society matrons clutching your pearls in horror at someone who has an opinion about something, a way of expressing themselves that's not the mirror image of yours, you sniveling little weak-ass narcissists? The high moral tone from social justice warriors is always out of scale with what they are indignant about. When did this hideous and probably nerve-wracking way of living begin transforming you into the authoritarian language police with your strict set of little rules and manufactured outrage demanding apologies from every sandwich or salad you didn't like. Teen Vogue, of course, found the use of boobs and knockers as, yes, misogynistic, and started a very tired complaint about the male gaze. That's uh, G-A-Z-E listeners. When I hear self-proclaimed feminists complaining about the male gaze yet again and hoping that it will, what, go away, be rerouted, contained, I'm thinking, are these women so deluded that they are bordering on insanity, or have they just not gotten laid in the last four years? The writer piping up in Teen Vogue about the insensitive misogyny of the Ferrera piece and how women need to be respected and not judged by their looks. And yes, the irony is delicious coming from Teen Vogue. Seemed so childish along with all the idiots tweeting out their hate that Tavana, quote unquote, reduced a woman's art to whether you want to fuck her or not. You're trash. Is indicative of the moment we are in. And there is the suggestion that maybe Tavana knew exactly what he was doing, inciting feminist hysteria, seeing if SJWs would take the bait. They always do. And I kept thinking, what if all I want to do is bang Nick Jonas? And I could probably write a 1,500-word ode to him talking about his sexy chest and his ass without really liking his music at all. Is that going to be a diss on Nick? Or if a woman wants to write about how she really hates Drake's music but finds him so physically sexy and desirable that she's lusting for it from him, where would that put her? Would either of those cases raise an eyebrow? No, because in our society, social justice warriors always prefer women to be victims. In all of these cases, from Jezebel to Flavorwire to Teen Vogue, they all succeeded in recasting Ferreira as a victim of something, reinforcing her supposed victimization. This is the usual hall of mirrors loop they find themselves in when they're looking for anything to get angry with. The reality of the world is that men look at women, and men look at other men, and women look at other men. And women especially look at other women and objectify them. Has anybody been on Tinder lately and how our Darwinian impulses are gratified in a swipe or two? This is the way of the world in order for our species to survive, and I doubt that is ever going to be erased. Now, I know this fake LA Weekly controversy is going to go away in about two minutes. And yes, everyone can have their deluded social justice warrior opinion about the case, which was actually brought to my attention by my favorite 22-year-old millennial fan who was disgusted by what he saw as a misguided and pompous feminist reaction to the Tavana piece. And we both thought in a perfect world, Sky would come out in favor of the LA Weekly think piece. And wouldn't that be so gratifying? And yes, snowflakes and little wussies, it was a think piece. When did Generation Wuss start becoming outraged over an op-ed? 
That's the real question. But because the little Nazis policing language have a new rule book about how men and women should and should not express themselves about their desires, this allows Jezebel and Flavor Wire to write their own childish responses, placing Skye in the delicious position of victim. But the sad ending of this story is that the LA Weekly, which edited and posted the piece, felt like they had to apologize for the piece after so much online complaining. Apologize about a piece where someone was clearly writing honestly, sometimes embarrassingly so, about what was on his mind in the moment about a performer and the way he was looking and, yes, gazing at this performer. And that was it. That is allowable. The overreaction epidemic that is endemic in the culture and the implicit calling for censorship by removing the piece is what should not be allowable. And it should be called out every time SJWs ignore the First Amendment. And I say overreaction because I can't really, really imagine Jezebel, who kind of admitted as much, or Flavor Wire, giving two shits over this. A think piece on why a man thinks Sky Ferreira is hot instead of just raging in a vacuum of their own making. And the LA Weekly should have pushed back on this and defended their writer, and by extension, freedom of expression, and just walked away. But no, they felt they needed to say, I'm sorry to all the snowflakes who found this innocuous piece so offensive and threatening and how it crossed some imaginary line of decency and placating all the crybabies who wanted the post taken down. And kudos to the LA Weekly for not taking it down, because if it had, that would have been actual censorship, which is what the left's social justice warriors really want. Why is it once again that I feel the well-intentioned, young, liberal, self-proclaimed feminist left has become so oversensitive about everything that we have entered into what is really an authoritarian cultural moment? It just seems that it's so regressive and so grim and so unreal, like in some dystopian sci-fi movie, there's only one way to express yourself as some kind of neutered thing, this mound, this clump turning away from your gender-based responses towards women, towards men, towards sex. This neutering, this castration is something no one really wants or believes in, I hope. But hey, maybe if I go with it and pretend to believe in it, it'll fill my column, and I do need to put out some clickbait this week. The most enjoyable movie I've seen so far in 2016 is De Palma, a documentary by Noah Baumbach and Jake Paltrow about the legendary American film director Brian De Palma, who is now 75. And I can only imagine the collective heads of the writers at Jezebel and Flavorwire and Teen Vogue exploding in outrage and horror and fear at the amount of female violation that courses through his most famous films. Female violation was one of the main preoccupations, as is the male gaze in some of the great De Palma films. And, of course, his biggest supporter throughout his career was the film critic Pauline Kael. De Palma's self-aware voyeuristic relationship to not only his female characters, but the medium itself, like Hitchcock's, was what gave his films a jolt and made his films so endlessly fascinating and complicated, as well as how technically facile and inventive De Palma dealt with the medium itself. De Palma's perversity in staging violence was witty and very cinematic. I can't think of a moment of realistic violence in a De Palma film. The stabbing in Sisters, the pig's blood and the massacre at the prom in Carrie, Fiona Lewis spinning to her death midair, and John Cassavetes exploding in the fury, the elevator slashing in Dress to Kill, the chainsaw sequence in Scarface, and all of this done on a grand scale that will never be replicated in movies again. Yes, this was the 1970s when De Palma started making a string of 
great films, with Carrie probably being his go-to masterpiece and one of the key films of the new Hollywood. Though with each successive viewing of De Palma's 1981 John Travolta conspiracy thriller Blowout, I'm not totally positive about that anymore, though uh, Blowout is Quentin Tarantino's favorite movie. My own personal faves for me remain Phantom of the Paradise and Dressed to Kill, where the killer is a tormented pre-op transsexual. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I just heard the Teen Vogue staffer self-immolating. De Palma's glory years roughly ran from 1974-ish to 1984-ish, though he did make a comeback with The Untouchables, which recently did and did not hold up as well as I remember. My boyfriend, who I turned into a De Palma fan in the six years we've been living together, turned to me after it was over and said, that was a hit? Well, yes, a very big one in the summer of 1987, as was a decade later the first and best of the Tom Cruise Mission Impossible films. And there are juicy stories and fascinating asides about how certain things were shot, as well as De Palma going into detail during his most notorious phase where he was attacked by feminists for being a misogynist. De Palma freely admits that he was drawn to women in peril in his films, and he was hugely influenced by Hitchcock's movies, specifically Vertigo, which he has cribbed from in more than one of his films. And he also talks about how because of the permissiveness of the 1970s, he was able to take basic ideas from Hitchcock and really play them out explicitly in a way that Hitchcock never could because of the conservatism in 1950 and 1960s American film culture. But he is unapologetic in his frankness about how he finds that there is more tension, more at stake, when a woman is in trouble rather than a man. Yes, De Palma is a man of a certain demo. These films were De Palma's fantasies, played out on a grand scale in movies like Body Double, where he encouraged feminist hysteria by having the central murder in the movie played out in a languorous sequence with a gorgeous young woman in just a skimpy robe being tortured by a man holding a massive power drill, ultimately impaling her on the floor with it. The way it's shot and set up is a great sick joke, and it drove feminists insane as if a depiction of misogyny is an act of misogyny. There's only one medium shot of Brian De Palma talking that we return to throughout the documentary in the same room, in the same blue shirt. But the majority of the movie is a brilliant and seamless array of clips from De Palma's movies. And it is a visually overwhelming experience. I had not seen some of these images on a big screen in decades, and I was in awe. Oh, my God. Movies used to look like that. De Palma says at one point about him and Spielberg and George Lucas and Coppola and Scorsese, the directors who led the new Hollywood revolution in the 1970s, that this kind of moment, this autorist freedom played out within the studio system with directors making films for adults will never return. And reminds us that it was over almost before it even began. De Palma reminds us that it wasn't Jaws or Star Wars that ended the new Hollywood. Aesthetically, they are examples of it. It was actually, as John Carpenter pointed out a couple of weeks ago, the failure of one of the grandest auteur movies ever made by a studio, Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate, that closed the door on an era. I don't want to be a nostalgist, and neither does De Palma, but I feel a deep sense of loss comparing the movies then with the movies now. If this isn't real, just can't
So where does Karen Kusama come into all of this? De Palma, along with Wiener, which is a very entertaining warts on all account of the last days of Anthony Wiener's failed run for mayor of New York, one of the rawest and funniest docs lately, and an extraordinary documentary called Author, the J.T. Leroy story about a recent literary hoax, which isn't available until September, are the three best films I've seen this year so far. And I've just finished part two of the absolutely amazing and riveting O.J. Made in America. And let's also remove the two foreign films that I've liked the most, Matteo Garone's Tale of Tales and especially Terrence Davies' Sunset Song. But what about narrative American movie making? On a second viewing, I'm convinced Karan Kusama's The Invitation is so far the movie of 2016. Is it a great film? What is anymore? Have you seen one? I haven't. Please tell me if you have. But so far in 2016, I haven't seen a more visually or thematically interesting American movie. Now, of course, this could all change over the summer and into the fall. But for now, this is where we are. A $1 million independent, non-supernatural horror movie shot in a house in the Hollywood Hills over 20 days. And that takes place during the course of one night with 12 characters convening for a dinner party. Hmm. As someone who lusts for a kind of grandness in movies... This does not sound like my kind of movie. And I caught it on VOD because it had been recommended to me, missing it when it played at the Arclight here in L.A., and I wished I had seen it on that big screen because there is nothing quite like it right now. An adult movie free of ideology, a genre movie that has a rare visual command. On a first viewing, the invitation's slow burn lead-up is absolutely dread-inducing and disturbing as you realize the real reason for the dinner party. The filmmaking is nuanced and precise, and the last 15 minutes are an explosion of violence and death. On a second viewing, the movie is actively terrifying from the start, knowing what is going to happen. The movie races along towards its bloody climax, with its poisonings and shootings and stabbings expertly staged. And as I said on the Bob Yari podcast when I was doing a roundup of 2016 movies so far, I talked about The Invitation as having easily one of the most unsettling final shots I've ever seen in a movie. And to talk any more about the movie is to expose its surprises, which we don't want to do necessarily. Karen Kusama is 48 and was born in St. Louis, the child of two psychiatrists, and she graduated from film school at NYU. She's only made three other features in her 16-year career as a filmmaker, Girl Fight in 2000, Eon Flux in 2005, and Jennifer's Body in 2009, and now The Invitation in 2016. A movie every five years. This was not by choice, and up until The Invitation, it has been sometimes a frustrating career for Kusama. She was initially independent filmmaking god, the father of independent cinema, John Sayles' assistant for three years, and Sayles ultimately fully financed Kusama's debut, Girl Fight, starring a then-unknown Michelle Rodriguez, after years and years of Kusama trying to get financing for her $1 million indie about a girl who wants to be a boxer. Girl Fight ended up winning both Best Director and the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance in 2000 and was bought for about $3 million by Screen Gems. From a $1 million production, Kusama, through a series of events, lands the sci-fi epic Eon Flux as her follow-up feature, and it costs around $65 million. After the movie is shot amidst a regime change and studio interference, chopping Kusama's cut into an unrecognizable disaster, Kusama is confronted with what every artist must deal with, how little the film industry is interested in what one has to say. Andy Warhol famously said when he came out here to make movies that Hollywood doesn't listen to you, you listen to Hollywood. 
Audiences and critics had a complicated reaction to Kusama's third feature, Jennifer's Body. There were fans and non-fans, and how you reacted to the film often depended on your gender. And like so many people tired of making no money in the indie film world, let alone getting their movies made, she's branched out into television recently. But if the invitation is the direction she's landed in and is exploring, I think the narrative is a happy one. So... Karin, the best narrative movies I've seen in 2016 are yours, and then uh, Italian and British. One is Matteo Garoni's Tale of Tales, and the other is by the 70-year-old Terence Davies called Sunset Song, who um, kind of throughout his career uh, was working on the fringes of British independent film, and his art house movies are often released to critical acclaim and little seen. And Sunset Song finds him working within the same kind of introspective stylization. It just feels like his biggest movie. And opening up to the world, um, breaking free from the confines of pure stylization, it's a it's kind of a quasi-feminist movie set in Scotland at the start of the 20th century and details the life of a young woman who decides to carry on the family farm after both her parents die, the mother of a suicide, the violent father of a stroke. And the movie switches gears in its last quarter and becomes a kind of didactic anti-war movie. But I highly recommend it in a way that I really, except for your film and maybe Jeremy Saulnier's Green Room, American movies, there's just very little out there so far this year. And I noticed yesterday that for the first time in maybe forever, I have only seen one film in the weekend top 10. And not only did I not want to see that movie, I didn't want to see any of the other movies in the box office top 10. I guess the first question is, do you watch new movies anymore? And if you do, what lately in American film have you liked in the last couple of years? Or are you, like me, increasingly not interested? And there's very little that's good you find. I mean, what movies have you really liked lately? Or the question is, what has happened to movie culture? (laughs) Well, I mean, it's interesting that you bring up Tale of Tales and Terrence Davies because it makes me think about this idea that I'm really interested in returning to just as a filmmaker. It's this notion of insistence, this idea that we as artists can and should be just living squarely in our obsessive selves. Yes. And I and I think, you know, it's it I saw the De Palma documentary as well and it was just such a palate cleanser because I feel like we need we need to be inside people's fucked up minds. Oh, <laughs> and, and, and it's very uh, difficult to do that here. Extremely difficult. And so I think that's part of the problem with American filmmaking right now is there's a sense of listening to Hollywood first. And I think all the best films get made and out there and whether they're received well or not they stand the test of time because they they weren't listening to the outside they they were they were sort of listening to something more interior and maybe more ultimately troubling and that becomes better art in my opinion yeah i mean i think that's true i also think that there is a resistance to a certain kind of perversity uh, that was allowable in 70s film culture. And I also think there's a generation that is resistance of in in a world of microaggressions and language police and triggering things Mm -hmm. are triggering you. (laughs) I really just don't know how uh, a a young generation is going to respond to, uh, you know, Scorsese, much let alone Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really Mm -hmm. is in terms of, so I think that's another um, problem entirely, but 
Your childhood crush is Warren Beatty, who is a major player and influential figure in the new Hollywood of the 70s. I mm-hmm. mean, creating it basically with Bonnie and Clyde, mm-hmm. starring in Robert Altman's McCabe and Mrs. Miller and Alan Pakula's The Parallax View. Both great films. Cal but both shampoo. But both bombs. And creating the seminal mo- one of the seminal movies of the 70s mm-hmm. and one of its biggest hits, Shampoo. And he really only had those three major hits. He had Bonnie and Clyde, Shampoo, and Heaven Can Wait, more or less, with that. And everything else was kind of strange and didn't really work that well into the 80s and beyond. But it's just funny. What was it about Warren Beatty that spoke to you? And I'm asking this because I was recently auditioning a young actor who was 20, who had no idea who Warren Beatty was and had never heard of him. That's such a tragedy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes. That's fascinating. What was it? Was was it just because he was the first? What was it that you first saw him in? Um, Probably Splendor in the Grass. Uh, Yes. And it was a combination of, I had a weekend, very momentous weekend, where I got to see, I believe, three, I got to see two triple features in a weekend. And so I believe it was Mickey One, Splendor in the Grass, Bonnie and Clyde. Then McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Shampoo, and maybe Heaven Can Wait. And I was 13, 14 years Mm -hmm. old. Um, You know, for me, the first thing that struck me was his beauty. You know, he was was a true movie star. Oh, yes. Definitely, yeah. And there was a – yet there was this – changeability to him, this obvious desire, particularly in films like The Parallax View and McCabe and Mrs. Miller, where you saw his desire to find darkness that mm-hmm. perhaps um, perhaps at that point he was having to dig for. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think I was aware of the complexity of this sort of godlike man in front of me, and I appreciated it. I mean, I um, by the time I was... 13 and watching Reds in the theater. I I was I was blown away by the achievement of that film. Now of course I watch it and I'm really struck by how sentimental it is. Oh yes. Um, I mean I was I was 18 and I saw it many times. I literally theater. saw it like 20 times I, in the theater. So did I. And now I I agree with you. It's it's a little tough. But 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 that being said, no one had taken documentary footage right. of real people and wove it into this uh, story of John Reed, I, I, it struck me as very fresh, and ultimately, I think in the back of my head, I knew this is a giant Hollywood movie about a communist in America, and it it felt like I, I without articulating it to myself because I was too young and stupid to to do that. It felt like not many people get to do this. So it must be Warren Beatty, something special about him. And that's what made me go back to all of his other films. And I feel like he had a sort of divining rod to really troubled, troubling personalities who wanted to make interesting kind of American statements about antiheroes and create antiheroes, which, you know, that's an, that's this really interesting sort of now it's almost become this cliche of American filmmaking, the kind of consciously unheroic man. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, to see someone so beautiful be, say, that lead guy in in the Parallax View, who half the time there's something kind of squirmy and unlikable about him, yeah. but look like him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it, it ignites a lot of, like, all of my burnout smoking lounge fantasies of of what became my high school years where I just wished I was cool enough to land in that camp 
but ultimately was kind of too much of a library nerd. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of it had to do with desire. I mean, I think that's the... That's the thread that uh, we all should be examining, you know, is it's a healthy thread, in my opinion. Yeah. Your revelations are actually Amy Heckerling's 1982 Fast Times at Ridgemont High and Martha Coolidge's 1983 Valley Girl, two R-rated teen comedies that are among the better movies of that era. And you thought suddenly as 14, 15-year-old movie lover, oh, women do this as well. Um as a cinephile and someone growing up around Hollywood, I was kind of aware that women didn't direct. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had there were people and um, I had friends whose fathers were producers and ran studios and stuff. Right. But it is still startling to come across that idea and yeah. that that was your reaction. And today, in retrospect, it's sad. Yeah. But those were the, the two movies that really did send you on your way, even though you were already a kind mm-hmm. of movie lover, mm-hmm. a cinephile. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the interesting thing is I was also watching Agnes Varda's movie. I oh, don't right. know if you remember Vagabond when that oh, came of out. Course. I was like the early 13. 80s. Yeah. yeah. So I was sort of uh, absorbing a lot of movie culture, but ultimately it, it is really interesting to see a movie like Fast Times and – I'm still struck by the lack of judgment in that film. Oh, completely. The sense of um, true, deep affection for its characters. A sense that um, the hierarchies hadn't been named yet, so you could actually just sort of enjoy watching these very distinct characters who seemed lost. And everyone seemed equally lost. Like, I love yeah. that nobody seemed to know what was really going on. And and I just thought it was such a beautiful movie. I mean, I still do, you know. And, and Valley Girl, I just feel like, you know, I get to see Nick Cage with his fucked up teeth looking more beautiful than he'll ever look ever again. Look, yeah. And there is something about also just this idea that surfaces themselves, particularly in Valley Girl, which is such a kind of candy, mm-hmm. sort of literally portrait of the valley kind of movie, yeah. that there's beauty to it, you yeah. know? Um, oh, yeah. and, att- and, and, and I felt in both of those movies, back to this idea of like this insistence, I felt the femaleness of the filmmaking, but not in a way... It was interesting to always be watching that movie with like groups of guys, groups of girls, like not feeling like... This was a targeted mission to get gir- – this wasn't pitch perfect. This right. wasn't even mean girls. Mm-hmm. It, you know, there was something yeah. sort of more universal about the filmmaking. Yeah. Um, the invitation is really not so enthralled or trapped by the screenplay. It's primarily, for me, it was a visual sensory experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though the screenplay is fine and it's well-structured, but as we know, the screenplay sometimes can be a trap, a limitation, something to work around. And you've said that narrative can be very limiting and that this idea of narrative as limiting, as an imposition to mm-hmm. a degree, is not practiced in Hollywood, nor in the writing community. And there is the idea, and I think TV reinforces this, that exposition and incidents, although there should be, we just got to keep moving from one incident to another. Right. Paul Schrader said, a screenplay is simply an invitation to collaborate with a number of people. What do you think of that notion? The screenplay is not the movie, and the movie is not the screenplay. What is the screenplay for you? Well, I mean... Not just because one of the screenwriters is one of is is my husband. I would actually argue that the screenplay for the invitation is is deceptively sophisticated. I agree because it it is trafficking in the tropes of dread and dread making and suspense and eventually violence. And there's something inherently um, satisfying about violence. Yes, in there cinema. is. 
But ultimately, there's so much not being said. There's so much being suggested that it opens up a door for me as a director to imagine everything unsaid and to imagine communicating that in a way that still has some mystery and some weight and a kind of emotional kind of undercurrent that allows all of the genre stuff to actually start to feel, to kind of gain in emotional intensity because my hope with the film was always that it hearkened back to those adult movies you're 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 referencing where and those were the movies we were always talking about i mean we were always talking about the parallax view we were mm-hmm. always talking about um strangely movies like all the president's men or three days of the condor mm-hmm. like just movies where patience was a requirement, yeah. Uh, but it was also rewarded with a sense that um, if you hang in with the story, you will start to see very major seismic shifts in the story. Um, and so, I, for me, what it is is narrative is limiting when you suddenly have to witness people explain themselves. Uh, yes, nothing is just really more tiring than that and this was a case where people might think they are explaining themselves but what they're saying is so counter to what we're seeing that um that felt interesting almost kind of like this meta exercise um yes because everyone is so burdened by their individual humanity and 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 so what the words out coming out of people's mouths about serenity and about uh i want to say you know, finding some kind of answer or peace, it all feels slightly false. But that's part of our experience, I think, particularly of living in places like Los Angeles, where there's a lot of um, serenity for sale. And I want to get to the invitation later and talk about why it seems like a quintessential Los Angeles movie. But I do want to go back. Mm -hmm. And I want to go back to 2000. Not to go into any great detail again about the story of getting Girl Fight made, but something about Girl Fight in that moment, mm-hmm. seeming like a quintessential Sundance movie in uh-huh. a way. For some, that's great. For yeah. others, that's a pejorative. Yeah, and sure. there seems to be a Sundance movie that is interested and kind of over-invested in ideology rather than aesthetics. And you could say just by the very nature of most of those budgets that go to Sundance, well, they kind of have to be. Where, you know, where do these aesthetics come in when you're making a movie in a cabin for $400,000? So I think the fact that, for example, Nate Parker's slave epic, The Birth of a Nation, was greeted last January with a standing ovation before it was shown <laughs> is indicative of ideology kind of trumping aesthetics right. in right. the indie biz. And also got a stand innovation afterwards. And yet, I, I do not know anyone who did not think that movie was a mess. Film Comment didn't even bother walking around this glaring fact. And, you know, Manola Dargas said the New York Times tried to walk around it in her coverage. But what is the Sundance movie that is most being lauded now, in a way? And I guess what I'm really asking, why is Sundance important in 2016 and beyond in terms of where we all seem to be going in movie culture? As someone who didn't I didn't take the invitation to Sundance. We we found a sort of better fit at South by Southwest. So I can't quite answer the question in terms of what Sundance's like immediate day to day relevance is. Though I think what's really interesting about Sundance and kind of we forget about is how many documentaries we see there and how many foreign films we see there. When I was a juror in 2010, I was blown away by the level of curation of those documentaries and of those foreign films, and so. For American audiences to to have one place where they can see films from Africa and from France and from Morocco and from Iran and, you know, like that's actually very um, useful 
and and that's an important kind of clearinghouse of what's actually happening in the rest of cinema, I think. Um, I think there's something about the festival experience that is still valuable because it's just people who want to be at the movies. Yes. And that's a different audience now than what we can expect even going to the movies here in the home of the the, the birthplace of massive entertainment in, in Hollywood. I just feel like you actually feel like there's there's no boredom factor, which does kind of give you maybe it's an unrealistic or sort of Marjorie Morningstar portrait of film going audiences, but it's a relief from the reality of movie theaters in America, which are these chaotic, loud kind of uncourteous places with people on their phones and people talking and people getting up and leaving and coming back. You right. know what I mean? Like right. I'm used to a little bit more of a like sort of uh, solitary feeling among others where I'm actually focused on something. Well, that's really true at any film festival, more or less. I mean, I remember I was I was the head of a jury at the Ghent Film Festival mm. in Belgium, and I was, again, just reminded that, oh, this is where I saw an array of great movies from around the world that will never probably be released. Yeah. And that the, the movie-going conditions in terms of watching the movies were pristine. Were yeah. Perfect. But I remember the spending sprees at Sundance starting in the early to mid-'90s. Yes. And there was something quite noticeable and quite suddenly happening called the Sundance Bubble, yes. where nice, well-intentioned movies were often the victim of having too much money spent on their acquisitions and then failing to make that money back and then deemed failures. And yes. it was a weird kind of trap. Yes, it is. And the producer, Jason Blum, was on this podcast talking about when he was working for Miramax in the mid-90s, he convinced the Weinsteins to spend $10 million on Happy Texas, mm-hmm. which went on to only, I think, gross about $3 million. Mm-hmm. And $3 million is what Girl Fight is bought for. And John Sales gets paid back. But the oh, yeah. movie barely makes about $2 million at the box right. office. Were you disappointed or were you just glad this happened and just glad that it was released? Was, was there an expectation on it any more than you making the film? No. I, I, and, and that I have to say that saved me pretty much um, as I've just gotten older in this business. And now I'm old enough to say I think I'm a veteran. But um, I, I did not have any expectations going to Sundance. I mean, I, I didn't even understand what the importance of competition was. It didn't occur to me that there was something to win. Like, I, I didn't – I really have a kind of willful naivete sometimes that I, I'm always attempting as an older person to to return to because it shelters me a little bit from the worry and the anxiety about, like, doing something right. Because right. I, I just think nothing kills your soul more than th- than wanting to do something correctly. Oh, um, and so I, I feel kind of like I, I went into it not even understanding what the benefits of, say, winning competition would be. Right. And over that 10 days, I learned and I got a very fast uh, education in doing press and sort of the demands of suddenly having to be public with yourself, which um, – hadn't occurred to me as a possibility either. I think I'm a little bit better at it now. Mm-hmm. But uh, in terms of how the film did, of course, I mean, it's heartbreaking to hear that, like, there's two people in Jacksonville, Thor- Florida seeing your film. 
all day, <laughs> you know, two people. Um, but then I'm like, well, you know what, though? Two people saw that. Right. No, no, no. <laughs> so that's my other way of looking at it. Like, I hope those two people remember it. You know, I can't I cannot read my early stuff without wanting to take a red pen to a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And I can't look at uh, um, uh, books that I published 20 years ago because I want to change them. I want to mm-hmm. move things around. And I they they they, uh, they are a reflection of where I was yes. at that moment. And it, it, that does not mean that my aesthetic was set in stone yeah. in 1985. Do you feel the same way about Girl Fight if you look back on it? Are there a lot of things you would have redone or no? You know, um, this is a thing for me about filmmaking. I see every film as an opportunity to make something and move on. And the instructive yes. part is the moving on, is the letting go. And so for me, of course, in the rare times when I've rewatched the film, um, I haven't in a very long time. And I can say the same of, of basically all of my movies, with the exception of The Invitation, because I've had to do so many mm-hmm. frigging Q&As recently. But um, part of what makes the experience like sort of exquisitely painful is, of course, that I can watch it and say, oh, my God, how did I not see that? How could I have let that stay in? I know now exactly the cut I needed to make. Oh, yes. But now I have to live with what it is. So in a way, that's that's the challenge of doing what we do is letting go. You said that at this point, you actually want to make not more accessible movies, but <laughs> less accessible movies. Yes, and that's that it definitely was true. Never in your DNA to make Runaway Bride or a movie right. where a scared girl is being chased down a dark street. Yeah. Was there a movie after Girl Fight? Was a there was a dream movie you wanted to make or not? A dream movie. Well, like a, the movie that you wanted to make that just wasn't happening between that and Eon Flux. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, after after making Girl Fight, which I always saw as an extremely unnaturally for me kind of accessible, satisfying arc, there's a movie that was more of a sort of body horror. I would say Cronenberg, particularly Dead Ringers, was a huge um, Dead Ringers and the Fly and the Brood, huge movies for me. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a body horror film that was very. Um, I thought deeply entertaining um, about a man, kind of alpha male, who is sort of unwillingly being dragged physically toward biological femaleness, mm-hmm. um, and he thinks he's dying, and in a way he is. He there, there, some part of him is dying mm-hmm. and being replaced by something else, and it was this sort of. Uh, a sort of structural conceit that the first half of the film is portrayed by a man and has a very kind of classical narrative structure. And the second half of the film, that character is replaced by a female actor and things sort of um, shift into a different kind of, I want to say, less classical storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um there are a lot of problems with what I've just said. <laughs> there, there, there's a ton of issues with why the movie didn't work for people. But I think it's the central problem was at the time that a man turns into a woman. And and that just was not no, – people saw the comedic possibilities, right. um, but they didn't see horror there. I mean, I think they felt horror <laughs> instinctively, mm-hmm. but they didn't see um, how to make that palatable. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't interested in palatable. I saw it as this sort of like um, baptism by fire kind of narrative. It's a kind of story I'd like to return to that has an extremity, um, just an extremity of purpose. And uh, that was a film that um, I 
tried to get made for years before I found Eon Flux, and and uh, it was a t- it was a tough sell. Well, you know, it's interesting because Eon Flux, you know, suddenly comes around and is offered to you rather easily without having to hop through a series of hoops for a year trying to get a job. Mm-hmm. And you were always wary of na- of navigating a big studio movie and a, with a I lot was. of action sequences. And this movie was originally budgeted something like a hundred and ten million dollars yes. and brought down to about sixty five million dollars, and it was based on the. Um, for those of you who don't know, the animated MTV series from the 1990s and starring a uh, newly minted Oscar winner, Charlize Theron. Mm. And though you have to you have to pitch yourself for Aeon Flux, you're hired. And mm-hmm. very unusual since Girl Fight, though admired, did not make money. No. But you meet your husband, mm-hmm. Phil Hay, on Aeon Flux because he wrote the script. And you eventually get married and have kids. So, you know, at least something came of it. And mm-hmm. But, you know... I would imagine it seemed like a great opportunity at the time. And I don't want to belabor the failure of the movie mm-hmm. and the epic nightmarish pain you mm-hmm. experienced mm-hmm. in post-production. <laughs> yeah. And it really is. If you look back at interviews with uh, Karin, it's one of the great cautionary tales in modern Hollywood. But you learned something about the studio system, mm-hmm. and that was? The artist is secondary in the process. It, it, and maybe not even secondary. Maybe what what are what's tenth down the what's what, what I don't I don't even know what that, that so, a- adjective is. <laughs> then the question is why hire one? It is a real question, and it's the central tension of the business that we're in. Yes, it People is. People say they want a point of view, and then they get one, and they're like, "Uh, do I want that point of view?" And Terrible. I think it's um it's a very difficult. This this is the economy we live in. This is the culture we live in. And I'm trying – I mean, I, honestly, when that De Palma documentary came out, I like ran to the theater because I wanted to be reminded that there are ways to ride a crest that allows for something crazy to happen, whether it's carry or Blowout or Dress to Kill or Scarface, if that's your thing. Um, I do want to sort of – open myself up to the fact that there's like possibility that often has to do with failures in the system. Yeah. Um, you know, at the time when I was at doing Eon Flux initially, Paramount was in crisis and that, that bore itself out, unfortunately, two times over with two new additional regimes while I was working on the film. But to me, some of my favorite stories of Hollywood filmmaking are the, about the films that are born out of studios in crisis. And so to me, there was a part that, of me that thought this might be a really exciting moment to make something interesting because it sort of slides by as this studio is struggling to figure out what it wants to make. And, you know, when you meet with Sherry Lansing and she says, we want this to be our Blade Runner, it's really tough to not get seduced by oh, yeah. the hope that it could be. Yeah. And, and um, you know, call me naive. Well, it's kind of ironic because, you know, you shared the Sundance Grand Jury Prize with Kenneth Lonergan in 2000 with uh, You Can Count on Me. Mm -hmm. And you both had a horrible 2005. His second (laughs) film, Margaret, which I guess spent five years in post-production with a ton of lawsuits before, you know, being released. God, the two most famous problematic productions of the 2000s were yours of Lonergan. I don't know how he's feeling about Margaret, but... I know how you have dealt with and put to bed Eon Flux Mm -hmm. to a degree. Mm -hmm. I've been thinking a lot about being raised in the 70s, Mm -hmm. a Gen X kid uh, like yourself, Mm -hmm. and how different my experiences and my peers' experiences are compared with millennial experience, especially culturally, and especially uh, as being defined by the movies. I mean, in retrospect, we seemed a lot more adult in a way in what we could 
take in mm-hmm. a movie. Jaws was the movie that every kid I knew at 11 experienced. It was the summer of 75. It was in the summer of 75, and it was the go-to movie mm-hmm. for young kids. But it is now essentially an R-rated picture. You know, it's mm-hmm. not. It's there is no way you could pass that through today's rating boards and sure. get a PG-13. It's way too bloody and too mm-hmm. horrific for ten-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I imagine mm-hmm. uh, that they might watch it on cable, but I, I don't know as a theatrical experience. And as I talked about it on the Thai West podcast. I find it strange that at 10 years old, I decided to go see Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise sure. in December of 74 at a movie theater that was within walking distance of my family's house. Mm-hmm. And I went by myself mm-hmm. and I sat in the theater by myself and kind of something shifted in me afterwards. My mind was blown. I was mm-hmm. changed. Mm-hmm. I was suddenly older. And I loved what I experienced that afternoon. I was becoming an adult. I was yeah. getting older. I don't quite know... If that's the arc now mm-hmm. of um, millennial and now the founder generation, mm-hmm. it's certainly for me, I was certainly at 10 not interested in comic books or Frozen. That was just not part of what my cinematic desire mm-hmm. had to do with. But did you have similar experiences? When you look now and you have you have young kids. I have a nine-year-old son. Okay, mm-hmm. nine-year-old son. Mm-hmm. Did you have similar experiences as a kid growing up into the late 70s, early 80s? I mean, just judging by some of the movies that you responded to, the Cronenberg films, yes. obviously. Yes. I mean, I feel like we all were blessed with a time that is gone. <laughs> and and, and I, I mourn it uh, a lot. And I talk about it a lot because I think people need to be reminded that there was a time where there was a, a, a such thing as repertory programming. And, you know, so I could be 12, 13, 14 and see six different Warren Beatty films, you know, over the course of Saturday and Sunday on the, at that same theater, I was 10 and, um, my mother out of just a sort of interesting curiosity took me and my brother and sister to see Eraserhead. And, you know, a movie like that is, um, when you're 10, it, it's a mind blower and a really kind of damaging experience. Um, you know, but, but to me, I mean, I, I admit I can't imagine bringing my nine-year-old kid to see Eraserhead. I, I, first of all, I don't know what the pacing of it, it, how much of it he would tolerate. But beyond that, it's 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 frightening, and it's a parable about the horror of having children. And so to sit there as my mother's child and watch that with her laughing till she was crying, <laughs> um, I just knew I was getting a window into the power of cinema that I wouldn't otherwise get. Referencing what we were talking about uh, as the screenplay that can be a trap in a way, uh, the screenplay that kind of asserts itself in such a way that directing it is kind of secondary. Uh, you're, in, you're in service of the screenplay. I don't know if I'm necessarily interested in those kinds of movies, uh-huh. but I do think that Diablo Cody does have that kind of screenplay. Sure. And Juno and Jennifer's Body are very tough scripts for a director because they're really, really written in a way, and they're mm-hmm. encased within the personality of the writer. Absolutely. And I think both you and Jason Reitman did remarkable jobs with what you had to work with. Those mm-hmm. are tough scripts. I actually think that Diablo is a key Gen X figure, and I think it's great that she wanted to make something that was, quote-unquote, delightfully exploitative. (laughs) And I like that attitude. But those first two scripts, and to a lesser degree, Young Adult and Mm -hmm. Ricky and the Flash, are scripts with a lot of quotation marks, Mm -hmm. you know? And they're very, very movie-ish. 
And her dialogue can be as recognizable as um, Neil Simon's or Aaron Sorkin's or whoever. And, Absolutely. And it can kind of it can hamper a director. Was there a lot of room for you to let your sensibility assert itself? Because I do think the movie looks gorgeous. Thank you. You know, and it has and, and look, Eon Flux has a cinematic and sweeping mm-hmm. look to it. Mm-hmm. And and I was reminded of that while watching the invitation because I think the invitation looks fantastic as well. But did you feel it was Jennifer's body, for example, was totally compatible with what you wanted to do. Or would you have been more drawn to a script that would have given you a little bit more tonal freedom? That's an interesting question because all I can think of as you're talking is my first read of Jennifer's body and and literally like just laughing so hard at, at the absurdity of certain things, at the obnoxiousness of Jennifer, at the... Uh, completely relatable toxicity of that friendship. I just sort of felt like um, I have to do this movie. Um, you know, something that everyone talks about Diablo's dialogue, and it's 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 very singular and distinctive. But I think what's sort of her more um, sly and surprising power is she's actually. She has a beautiful sense of the visual. And so in Jennifer's body, I felt like she was really speaking to the to the kind of Carrie-esque, prom night-esque. There, there, there's, there's a sort of high-low hybrid that mm-hmm. she was playing with mm-hmm. that has an opportunity for tremendous beauty. And so for me, as I was reading Jennifer's body, I was thinking about... Dario Argento. I was thinking about Mm -hmm. the ways that beauty is its own sort of insidious weapon and trap. And so for me, I I guess I I felt like it lit up those interests for me in the idea of beauty itself, because I think beauty is a completely underrated um, kind of thinking about what your your Mm -hmm. initial essay. Um, Movies are not nearly beautiful enough for the most part. And, and, And in my opinion... They have the possibility to all, almost always be beautiful. And so it's really a, a missed opportunity time and time again when they're not beautiful. And when I say beautiful, I mean beautiful in all kinds of ways. Yes, yes. You know, I don't, I don't, um, I don't have a, I have my ideas about beauty. Right. We're not talking about a kind of like stodgy lyricism. No, like it's not. Forest, I'm not talking right. about yeah, a Maybelline yeah, commercial. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, ta- I'm, I'm talking about visual sophistication. Yeah, yeah. And so I just felt like I could do that. It's interesting because the tone trumped the visual schematics of the film. Yes. And so that is its own kind of learning curve for me. Be- right. Because I, I, you know, some of those like um, funny horror films. It's hard to pull off. It's horror very, very, very hard, very difficult. And, and in many respects, I'm really drawn to the, to the most difficult path and to the most difficult thing in front of me. Well, I kept thinking, what if it had been played straight? If you had made a serious horror movie with that script yep. and just pulled a tonal shift because, it, look, the movie did divide people along yes. gender lines. Women saw an amazing truth in that movie that was so disturbing in terms of how female – the dynamic of a female relationship right. that men just probably just went over their heads. <laughs> they did not – they didn't see it as right, that. Right. And they looked at the, you know, the same-sex make-out scene yeah. or like the yeah. gore or the funny toe for grace Which moment. Which many women criticized me for as well. But you mean the Megan Fox, Amanda Seyfried scene? Or, oh, yeah. I, mean, I got was, skewered for that. But and that it was, was a little bit like, <clears throat> but it's erotic. I mean. Isn't that part of what we go to movies for? It, <laughs> so. it was much talked about. And, you know, good for you guys because, you know, if there was another movie like Jennifer's Body and there were two men making out, that would never have gotten made. So nope. now but- that you say that, I want to get that made. <laughs> <laughs> I, I- 
Game Changer funded the mm-hmm. invitation, and it's a financing company that funds films directed by women. And I am sure this bothers you immensely <laughs> that these entities must exist now. And you have actually called it, I think, quote unquote, fucking sad. <laughs> And, you know, you had big and sizable budgets for both Eon Flux and Jennifer's Body. And then you are going back to your roots. One million bucks. Mm -hmm. What is the difference between one million bucks in 2000 and one million bucks in 2016 or 2015? I mean, you lamented after the invitation was finished. I do see how money can be utilized to a creative end. Absolutely. We're at such a feast or famine moment, and the feast is kind of like religious and cleansing, and the famine makes you sick. So I, 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 I'm, I'm trying to figure out which one. Uh, it's also, um, it's also tough because I got to make the movie I wanted to make. Yeah. that's what I got out of the experience, and I would never trade it. Never, right. ever, ever. I got Final Cut. I've been working toward Final Cut ever since Girl Fight. I want to continue to make films that feel like mine. <laughs> But it's really hard to keep asking for favors. It's just, Ugh, you know, yes. to, to ask people who work at a very high level to work for nothing or to work for I barely know. anything, that becomes hard on relationships, professional, creative, friendship relationships. So that, I would say, is is the problem, is that the economies of independent film now are so um, depleted. The idea is get it for free, get it for free. Like it's, it's sort of mirrored in our sort of, um, in the conversations we're having about like economies and finance right now, you know, that it's sort of less for everybody else and more for the, for only a few. And so I, it, it, it was a challenge. Whereas with making Girl Fight, even though it was hard, it's like everybody kind of got paid something commensurate to where they were in their careers that didn't happen well, with the invitation. Well, originally the invitation had a much starrier cast. It wasn't Luke Wilson or Zachary Quinto, Topher Grace, and Johnny Glicky kind of going to be in a version of yep. the invitation. Yep. But I think the cast you have now is great and benefits from Thank people you. that are not automatically recognizable. Right, right. It really makes the film more real and more scary than if you had had Luke Wilson in, I would suppose, the role of... Who? Marshall Logan? Yeah, yeah. Logan Marshall Green. Logan Marshall Marshall Green, listeners might remember from Prometheus. He kind of looks like Tom Hardy's Mm -hmm. younger brother. Very similar looking. And I think just as good an actor. I think he's great in this movie. How do you kind of find him? How did he come into play for the invitation? He was brought up by our wonderful casting directors. And I met with him. And there was just a very kind of haunted... uh, he was he was very focused with me, but there was a kind of other voice also guiding him, a kind of distractedness about he, – he was very honest. He said to me, I've just had a son. Um, I'm not looking to bring bad energy into my life. Mm-hmm. And I appreciated that sort of superstition. I kind of felt like, okay, all the more reason for you to do it. You're the right guy. Let's just do this. And and from that point forward, we just uh, hit it off. You know, I want to talk about, I want to get back to what we were talking about earlier about uh, the invitation as a quintessential L.A. film. L.A. as a place of promises and reinvention, uh, mm. Southern California mm. as a place for searchers of yeah. optimism, but also poses mm-hmm. and a kind of laid back politeness that erases dealing with difficult emotions. Absolutely. And, you know, the movie really explores this dark mythology of Los Angeles and utopian dreams gone wrong. 
And I oddly thought about the second time I was watching it, I don't know why, I thought about Pixar's Inside Out, mm-hmm. the idea of avoiding and sidetracking loss in a way, and the problems that arise when you kind of negate grief. Absolutely. And also just want to throw in there, the, the last shot at the invitation, oddly enough, reminded me of the last shot of Shampoo, in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, the one I mean where George is on the hill and Absolutely. everything. But how do you see the invitation as an L.A. movie? I mean, I really do think on a second viewing, it could only take place here. Yeah, I agree. And I'm happy to hear that. I mean, Phil and Matt and I always talked about this idea that this the the idea that you know all utopias lead to genocide um yes. you know it felt like a very <clears throat> los angeles supported idea you know just the ideology of that and part of for me la that over the years it's sort of like i could only make the invitation now after having um sort of experienced a lot of creative deaths, I want to say, um, because what I've come to realize about Los Angeles and its and its power and its influence is it it's a literal dream factory. What we do as our primary industry to the world is project our dreams out onto screens. And some of our dreams are Transformers movies and Independence Day sequels and The Purge and... Uh, romantic comedies, and there's a schism, a kind of cultural schism where we're all sort of fighting for our dream, for our version of the dream, and that's why there's so much pain in the studio system. There's people's egos that need to be sort of fed with, like, I need myself in that dream. You know, like, I can't be an onlooker. I need to be a player. And, And so I get it. It's sort of like we're all fighting for our vision, even if the person fighting for their vision has nothing to do really with the making of the movie. They want their vision to be represented. And that strikes me as the problems of democracy, the inherent yes. complications that, that, that happen in a free society. And that's what the invitation was trying to get at, was the danger, the tenuous relationship we must have to our freedom. And to all of those ideas, that there's a point at which one has to look to themselves and look to the person next to them and say, maybe I need to get the fuck out. One house is the set, and yet the movie breathes. The movie never feels constricted. In fact, quite the opposite. And it's so elegantly shot and composed and lit that you become excited by the movie making, which is my sweet spot. Story (laughs) and characters, whatever. Okay, I don't care. But for me, it's what the filmmaker does with it. I mean, mm-hmm. that really is style mm-hmm. is really important in terms of a film. I agree. Uh, you can't, you know, you someone could have done this handheld or like sure. very lazily without this kind of elegance. And you've mentioned that some of the visual cues you and your DP Bobby Shore, who shot the invitation on the Alexa, shared were two of Alan Pakula's paranoid trilogy movies, like mm-hmm. we've mentioned before, Clute and The Parallax View, uh, both shot by the great Gordon Willis, mm-hmm. as well as you were thinking about Thomas Vintenberg's uh, Dogma Experiment, mm-hmm. The Celebration, mm-hmm. and the original Let the Right One In, as well as Phil Coppin's Invasion of the Body Snatchers mm-hmm. remake and Polanski's Repulsion and Rosemary's Baby. And interestingly enough, Kurosawa was high and low, mm-hmm. whose first hour takes place in a living room. And in terms of framing and how are you going to work... That that was very interesting. I guess you learned a lot from watching how that was kind of handled. And the sound design is superb. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I mean, sound is the uh, unsung hero of of visual storytelling, Uh, but in my opinion. But um, high and low, you know, that first hour of filmmaking, it's it's just unparalleled in terms of the framing. And and there's a 
boldness. It, this is what I think is exciting about these kind of small, constricted, claustrophobic movies, potentially claustrophobic, is it actually opens you up to sort of how much it's demanding of you. You know, there's something about when Kurosawa decides to essentially film almost everybody's back with the exception of mm-hmm. one character, for instance, in some kind of um, silent profile, that all of a sudden every frame has meaning, weight, tension, a sense of sort of mystery. And and to note, again, in the most basic way, ah, the, the framing, staging, uh, blocking, those are art forms that need to stay alive in cinema. I mean, that's what cinema is. <laughs> and so for me, I felt like, oh my God, I'm getting an opportunity to really push some ideas about what reality looks like. And um, it was it was really, that was a really kind of wonderful creative component of it for me. You know, in many ways, the invitation is a deeply pessimistic film. <laughs> I mean, the last shot isn't the hands clasped together. The last shot is, well, the last shot. Yeah, that yeah. Na- nightmarish landscape. <laughs> and with a nightmarish sound design closing in on us, um, I love this ending. It's truly apocalyptic. <laughs> but do you think becoming a mother made you more or less pessimistic about the world? Absolutely um, more. <laughs> yes. Absolutely more pessimistic. I mean, in in that... Knowing the love I feel, knowing the sense of, um, you know, kind of understanding unconditional devotion, I am still blown away by what humans do to other humans. Um, I kind of can't get over that we're the top of the food chain, and yet the thing we've learned to destroy the best is each other and ourselves. And I'm trying to understand how we can be such a sophisticated animal species and yet continually default to apocalypse. And so, you know, people meet me and they feel like I'm a pretty positive, optimistic person. And day to day, I try to be. But that's just because I'm like thinking about what new thing I want to make for dinner or um, what movie I want to see on the weekend or, you know... Ultimately, my worldview is pretty dark Mm -hmm. because I think um, for whatever reason, we don't seem to care that we are hurtling toward potential extinction of our species. And we we talk a lot about, like, say, the Earth and and caring for the Earth. The Earth is going to do fine without us. Right. Um, It's us I'm concerned about. And I'm (laughs) I'm really, really interested by the fact that it it seems like we live in a state of almost a kind of perpetual willed blindness. And, um, you know, all I can do is shrug my shoulders at this point. I don't quite know what to do. What was I doing when I was rethinking the invitation about whether Will could have been the female character, could have been maybe Tammy Blanchard coming to the house with mm-hmm. her new boyfriend? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And that actually you'd switch it up and she was going to see her ex-husband who had joined this cult because uh-huh. of the woman he had ended yes. up with. And I started to think about the possibilities of that movie. And then I realized, for me, that it would have made no emotional sense, Mm. that it doesn't seem like what a woman would do or how a man would react. Now, does that thinking make me sexist? And I'm totally with you asking that and exploring my sexism. But but the script was was written by a man. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe it's just a guy thing. I don't know. I mean, the question that I was having, are there things... 
that women and men do that are different from how, because of their gender, they react mm-hmm. to things? And is it that okay to admit that? And am I wrong about the invitation that it had to be to make emotional sense? The story with those two figures fixed, her in the house, yes. him entering into the house. Yes. I mean, I, I don't necessarily know if I would have resisted the the alternate version you're bringing up. Mm-hmm. I do know that what was powerful for me about the version that exists is that we and the audience are uh, squarely living inside that man's vulnerability and terror and doubt and paranoia. And I think there's something very, very powerful about putting people there. Watching the De Palma documentary, I walked out and I said to Phil, I get that people are frustrated by the fact that he's always got a woman being, you know, impaled or stabbed or chased or looked at. And But in the end, De Palma is that woman. Yeah. And so I feel this tremendous sense of almost um, affection and, and alignment with the female from him. And in the same way for me making the invitation, I felt this incredible alignment to the kind of damaged masculinity of that main character of Will. I I felt like I know what it means to feel like you don't have your agency and strength anymore. And so for me, I kind of felt like this is the feminist statement I'm making. It's not about woman and man or male and female it's something kind of i want to say more elemental about states of being that exist in all of us if that makes sense i I wish more people would look at the world like that rather than be enslaved to these certain ideologies in 2010 while promoting imperial bedrooms i gave a lengthy interview to movie line Mm -hmm. and during that interview over drinks at the soho house the reporter and i talked a lot about movies and i was asked what my two or three favorite movies were recently and I said, uh, Andrea Arnold's Fish Tank mm-hmm. and Floria Sigamundi's The Runaways were probably the two best movies I'd seen recently. And then I think I had tweeted something after seeing Fish Tank. Um, best movie I've seen in a year. I've got to stop saying that women can't direct. Uh, or something to that effect. Ouch. It, uh, and <laughs> I must stress over drinks, uh, something I never did in an interview again. I started to muse aloud about why I thought there weren't more women directors. Hmm. And I started to talk about how maybe it's a medium suited to men and the male gaze, not correctly talking about the male gaze in the way that the was originated in the mid-70s, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but as a fact that men like to look at things more than women, and perhaps that they were then more suited to this medium that is dependent on being a voyeur and is uh, its very momentum, you know, the ruthlessness of the rapidity of images mm-hmm. was something that appealed to men more than women, at mm-hmm. least within the confines of American movie making. Mm-hmm. In Europe, it's slightly different. But it was actually a kind of searching conversation, Mm -hmm. and it was me theorizing, having never talked about this before, about why there were so few women working in film. And I said some dumb things, but I also was at times, I feel, taken out of context. I talked about how it seems most movies made by women that I'd seen were lacking in a kind of visual intensity compared to movies made by men. Mm -hmm. And it came out that I somehow credited cinematographer Lance Accord to the mood and atmosphere of Lost in Translation, a movie I loved, Mm. which I didn't believe because I really think that the movie comes from Sofia Coppola's vision. Again, I was a little drunk, but this interview <laughs> this interview comes out, and of course, uh, as I probably should have been slammed in the press by women, <laughs> but privately and in retrospect, scarily, a lot of men told me they agreed with me mm-hmm. in that interview. 
And that interview still comes up to this day. I'm kind of haunted by it. Mm-hmm. And I haven't even bothered defending myself about that interview. It is what it is. It's out there and, and it's still referenced by women who see me as the writer of American Psycho and mm-hmm. proof of my sexism. <laughs> and this was not helped when I would talk about the Hollywood tokenism that surrounded, for some of us, Catherine Bigelow's Oscar win as Best Director for The Hurt Locker. And especially for some of the raves of Zero Dark Thirty, neither movie I particularly liked, mm. and was, was kind of suspicious of the praise heaped on them, including Bigelow on the cover of Time magazine. And I knew that if a man had directed Zero Dark Thirty The Hurt Locker, he would probably not have been elevated to such heights. And I tweeted something about how if Bigelow had been a man, she would have been considered a competent craftsman and an okay filmmaker. But because she is a woman, she is wildly overrated. And I, I actually, what I got, what got me into trouble was like, I added because she is a hot woman, she mm-hmm. is wildly overrated. Not just a woman, but as you know. <laughs> and however, let's take away some of the sexism in the language. I think it's not an attitude. I think it's simply opinion. I don't uh-huh. really, I, I really do look at film as film. And I don't care if, you know, a gopher directed it necessarily. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm talking about the reactions to the movies rather than the movies themselves in a way. And it's just an opinion. But in terms of our society now, it seems that you have kind of a negative ideology if you criticize Catherine Bigelow in a mm-hmm. way. I, I think that the outrage over a piece I wrote for the New York Times last fall about Tarantino where we both agreed uh, that Ava DuVernay's movie Selma was not interesting and Mm -hmm. was kind of completely overrated by critics. And because of the ideological moment we are in, and DuVernay being a black female director, and this was simply an opinion, we were branded sexist, racist Uh by social justice warriors over an opinion about aesthetics, Mm -hmm. about aesthetics. It wasn't an ideological <laughs> one. And, you know, Tarantino and I shared the opinion that, well, of course he did, that Inglorious Bastards should have won over the Hurt Locker at the Oscars. Suddenly we were branded misogynists and mm-hmm. that Tarantino had a problem. So I guess this is a very long question that I really wasn't <laughs> going to ask. But where does this sexism and supposed misogyny tags come from? And am I a sexist and a misogynist because of these comments? And if so, how did I, as let's say an everyman, get there? Um, I don't know you well enough to say if you're a sexist or a misogynist. Um, I think of those things as somewhat simple states, and you seem too complicated to be either of those things in a in a complicated way. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I guess I would I, – I, I'm not quite sure. I think you got there through – the privilege of belonging. And who knows if Catherine Bigelow wants to end up on the cover of Time. She may just want to be able to keep making her movies the way her male counterparts do. Um, She may just want to be left alone the way some of her most um, auteurist male counterparts do. And so I think we sort of assume ego and agency in this larger system And sometimes it's there. Sometimes there are people who absolutely want the attention, want the publicity, want to create the narrative. And sometimes the narrative gets created by culture itself. And so there's a little bit of – it's – I don't do Facebook. I don't do Twitter. I don't do any of that stuff. So I actually very consciously keep myself out of these conversations. I'm just now discovering this like magical world called podcasts. I mean so I'm not even really up on what's cutting edge in in the dialogue. But to me, you know, something I will take away from the 
last round of publicity I've had to do for the film, which has been really interesting and informative and wonderful and validating in many respects. But I've been perhaps fatigued and a little troubled by how frequently I have to talk about being female. And what's really interesting is I'm realizing the reason I'm resistant to talking about female doesn't have anything to do with a sense of shame or disappointment that I'm female. It just, it creates a paradigm in which the male, the white male view is the standard. And I don't believe it is. So for me, I feel like everybody's sort of identifying a status quo or a standard that I don't subscribe to. So there's a part of me that just feels like I can't even, we can't even have this conversation because it's like we're talking about apples and oranges. Is it harder for me? Possibly. All I know is my experience. Do I see my male counterparts getting shots or opportunities that I don't? Possibly, but I also know how many shots and opportunities I pass up because they're not right for me. So it's a very complicated question, I think, um, this question about gender. The numbers are abysmal. That's That's true. true. That is true. (laughs) Ileana Douglas was on this podcast a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, she's now creating shows and directing and she's done web series and stuff. And she was talking, frankly, about her eight-year-long relationship with Martin Scorsese. They were together. And she said, women have made the mistake, she's talking about Hollywood, women have made the mistake in thinking that being loved is more important than their career and talent. Hmm. She said that's something that she had noticed. Does that at all resonate or is that something that just seems from a different generation? That's a really interesting idea only because for me, being loved was never something I actively sought out. I admit that part of what allowed me to have a very creative period in my 20s and into my early 30s was the idea that the thing I needed to learn to love was my obsession over all kinds of ideas and images that I wanted to sort of work out my relationship to on film. And what happened in having met Phil and have us fall in love with one another was kind of an opening up of another part of myself and my personality. But I can't say I ever imagined that that was something that was a given in my life. And so maybe in letting go of romantic ideas, you open yourself up to creative spaces to occupy and you can also occupy those and ha- and keep some of those romantic ideas alive but i just think um maybe there's some truth to what she's saying in that i i never expected that was a, a right in my future you know that i had to have love but being loved is great and loving is even better finally I just hired an assistant mm. who graduated from USC Film School. Male this or last female? June, male. Okay. And as we were talking, I asked him about what he studied and what he wanted to do. And he said that no one he knows wants to be a movie director. That the notion <laughs> of just being a movie director is over. And there was no one in his class who talked about movies that way and being a film director. Uh-huh. It was being able to direct anything, all kinds of content. And that the idea of just being a movie director was a huge limitation. And that at 23, everyone his age knows this. Your reaction to that? Or was your laughter sufficient? I just think maybe it's worth it to spend another 10 years watching movies and then make that assessment. Because the great ones change your life and teach you what great art teaches you. Personally, I'd love to get in on that game and stay in it. 
so, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of ways to make stories and make content, but I don't really care about content. I actually am not looking to fill anyone's pipeline. I'm looking to just uh, tell stories. And maybe that means I'm really old fashioned, but I'm perfectly secure being an old fashioned movie director if that's what it's going to take in 2016. 